Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. When it comes to parenting, there are thousands of books with myriad bits of advice for soon-to-be parents and those who are already parents and facing some kind of struggle. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming when we think of all the bits of advice out there. One would think we don't need more, right? But what if you're a parent who just can't see yourself in any of these books or pieces of advice? What if you just aren't represented? This has been the reality for many LGBTQ plus soon-to-be and already parents when they browse the books that are, well, incredibly heteronormative. And as we all know, when you aren't represented, it's hard to know where to turn or to feel like you're even supposed to be a parent. Joining me this week is Dr. B.J. Epstein-Woodstein to discuss her new book, We're Here, A Practical Guide to Becoming an LGBTQ Plus Parent, where she not only offers advice for those who have not been previously represented, but also advice for the rest of us on how we can support everyone in their parenting journey. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. B.J. Epstein-Woodstein. Now, Dr. Woodstein is a Swedish to English translator, writer, editor, lactation consultant, and doula, as well as an associate professor in literature and translation at the University of East Anglia in England. She has published hundreds of articles and many books and translations. Her most recent books are We're Here, A Practical Guide to Becoming an LGBTQ Plus Parent, which is the focus of our talk today, and The Portrayal of Breastfeeding in Literature as well as the translation of The Book That Did Not Want to Be Read by David Sundin and the editing of International LGBTQ Plus Literature for Children and Young Adults. She lives with her wife and their children in Norwich, England. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. (laughs) So I have to ask about this. Epstein Woodstein. That's like an alliteration that goes. <laughs> yeah. It's not alliteration. It's a, a rhyme. It's a mouthful. Here. That's what it, it is. It is a mouthful. Yeah. yeah. So how did that come about? So I was born as Epstein and grew up as Epstein and did my PhD as Epstein, started publishing as Epstein. Then I met my wife, who's Woodley. We decided to get married and to have children. And we thought, what could we do to sort of fully become a family? We decided to come up with our own last name. And obviously some people do a double-barreled last name, but that is way too much to say with Epstein Woodley. And we played around with different possibilities and we decided to go with Woodstein. And um, that's what our children have as the last name. And that's what we mostly use, both of us. And we love it. We love that we've got sort of a new family identity. I absolutely love that. That's something, you know, I my husband and I have talked about, you know, ours just happened to blend really well, but it was, I've always said, I never understood why families don't just get to come up with their own name again. Like you're creating a new family instead of taking someone's name or trying to do, you should be, you're creating a new unit. So it, it seems to make sense that way. So I absolutely love that. That's why neither of us wanted to sort of give up our identity completely. So forging something new together worked well for us. That's wonderful. I love it. Well, thank you for being here. I know we're going to talk about this book. We're here, A Practical Guide to Becoming an LGBTQ Plus Parent. I also now realize I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about breastfeeding and literature because that's a whole other fascinating topic. <laughs> yeah, um, but before we go into kind of the detailed questions, how did you become interested in the LGBTQ Plus parenting, but also the experience of the parents? So, I mean, obviously, as I said, we are um, a two-mom family, um, as we sometimes describe ourselves. And for us, it was a very obvious thing to try to understand what was going on for other LGBTQ people. I mean, our experience, um, our journey, I should say, to parenthood was not always um, very easy. And we were not always met with compassion or understanding from medical professionals or legal professionals or other people that we were meeting on our way. And when I talk to other people who are maybe two women or two men or, you know, some other combinations of kind of queer relationships, poly families and so on, I heard a lot of similar stories, people who were not being treated with the respect or help that really they needed. And um, that's why I decided to research it and to write the book that I wished that we'd had when we were starting um, on our journey to becoming parents. I love that saying that writing what you wish you'd had, because that is, you know, it kind of leads right into the next question that I think is one that I hate asking because I 
think it's such an obvious like non-starter, but I think it's something that a lot of people think about, which is why do we need a special book for LGBTQ plus parents? Like, I think a lot of people always go there. So what, aren't there enough parenting books out there? Don't they cover everything? How are these heteronormative books not meeting the needs of these families and families to be? Yes, there are loads of books and um, probably too many. And some of them are indeed really helpful, but none of them really tackle the kinds of issues that we face. I mean, some of the things that they generally don't cover are all the different ways that you could become a parent. And sometimes people say, oh, it must be really hard for you as two women or whatever the situation is. Um, but actually, I'd say we've got many options. So we're really lucky. But nobody said to me, here are your options. Here are the pros and cons for those options. Here's how it might work. Here are things to consider in terms of your legal rights, or here are things to think about when it comes to parenting and the questions you might get from other people. I couldn't find any of that in the books that I was reading. And I felt that that was a really clear lack. And when I spoke to other people, I was sometimes shocked at how little information they had. I mean, we regularly have people come up to us and say, oh, you know, my sister is gay and she's thinking about having a child, but she doesn't know what to do. Can she come talk to you? Or, you know, I've got a daughter who is with a woman. How would they have a child? And so I felt actually there's a real need, not just for queer people ourselves, but also for other people to learn about our possibilities, our options and the kinds of needs we have. Um, and also to help, I guess, professionals know how they could best and most politely and usefully meet us when, when we come to their offices. I, it was funny when I was reading through the book, I actually thought it was far more relevant for all families than I think the others tend to be. It was like all those options because they could be open to, you know, other couples as well, but it was just such a clear guide to all these different things to consider and talk about. It was like, to me, it feels like a better, more inclusive book for everyone than what we typically see out there. Yes, I was trying so hard to be as inclusive as possible. I mean, I have on the on the cover of the book, um, I have the Pride Progress uh, flag, and it says they're striving for inclusivity. And that was really the aim for me and for my publisher to be as inclusive as possible. And as you say, yes, you know, it is aimed at LGBTQ people and those working with us, but there's stuff in there for everybody. I mean, you know, there are heterosexual people and cisgender people who need IVF. And so there's information in there about IVF. And there are people who are thinking about fostering or adoption or people who don't know what their options are when it comes to infant feeding. And so I hope that it will be helpful to lots and lots of different people. Yeah. It's, and that's what it was. It was just the, the vast array of things covered that, you know, you don't always think of when your options are kind of presented more narrowly just because of biology and, and, and where you're coming from that. So it was just such a lovely thing. So I'm, I'm so happy it's there, but oh, I want to, I want to dig into some of these things because you kind of covered some of the issues that have come up for a lot of LGBTQ plus families. So both, you know, in your experience and in your research, getting this book together, well, let's start with the bigger question. How much research is there into all of this <laughs> stuff? Like, like that, I think is a really big overarching issue here, isn't it? Yeah, there's very little research. Um, and people are starting to carry out more research. But the honest truth is, is that there has been very little. Partially, it's because we have not had the legal rights in all countries to get fertility treatment or to adopt or even to marry. Um, this is only extremely recent, and but also people haven't been able to get funding for it. It's been seen, I think, as a very niche subject. But actually, when you look into statistics, you know, there are hundreds of thousands, possibly up to millions of children being raised by queer parents we're a quite big section of the population. And so I'm a little bit surprised and dismayed that we're still not really being researched. Um, I think, you know, for academics out there, this is a huge area that um, is worth uh, looking into now. Yeah, there's been very little up until this point. So I think, you know, we, we talk about that just as the preface of we're going to talk about some of these issues, struggles, whatnot. But the caveat is that there really isn't a ton. So a lot more is going to come from, you know, anecdotes, stories, the experiences of talking to families, which are crucial, I think, because often 
that's always the starting point for research, right? Like you start by talking and then say, huh, I wonder how that goes this way, that way. Does it apply to everyone? And so I think it's still incredibly valid and it's not, you know, you can't control how much research is out there, right? Sometimes I always say the same thing about stuff. There's a lot of topics we talk about. We just don't have the research to make answers and we need that research to be done. So I just want to get that out because I think it's fair to kind of go here. So in putting this book together, you talk to a lot of families, you have your own experiences. I want to go back to like that start of the journey towards parenting. So we're not even into parenting here. What are some of the most common struggles that face LGBTQ plus parents as they're getting started? So one thing that I mentioned was thinking about what are our options, because a lot of people don't even know. So that's one thing. The next thing then is getting the support that you need. So, for example, just in our case, I remember going to, you know, my GP surgery to talk to the doctor. And I said, you know, look, we're two women. We'd like to have a baby. Um, can you give me some information about what's available to us? You know, we're here in England, so we have the National Health Service. What could we get? And the GP turned around and looked really shocked and said, oh, well, I don't know. She said, I've only ever dealt with a single woman before. Um, I don't know. I've never met anybody like you before. You know, this is in a relative, you know, relatively big city in England, you know, <laughs> only less than a decade ago. And this is what her response was to me. And, you know, okay, I go out and I do my own research. I am an academic. I can research. I can find things out. But not everybody necessarily has that skill or the interest or the time in doing those things. And so going to the doctor seems like the obvious first step. And if you're not met with help or even a polite response, I think for some people that might stop the journey. They might think, oh, am I really, you know, should people like me even have children? And that leads to another issue um, in that many of us come from, you know, families of origin who are not necessarily supportive. Um, I remember one of my relatives um, actually said to me at one point, oh, people like you don't have children. Um, and so, you know, when you're faced with that, when you're faced with that kind of prejudice or lack of understanding, it's sometimes hard to kind of find your own truth or find your um, your own confidence to live your truth and to carry out the things that you want to do in your life to achieve them. And so it's kind of this range of lack of information, but also lack of personalized support and respect from people around you. That subtle messaging, I mean, I'm horrified at what the dog, like, especially from a health professional who mm. just, because I'm also wondering, I'm sorry, what is the big difference between even just presenting options for a single woman versus two, like, it's not like your uteruses have like merged or something. <laughs> like it's the same thing going no. on here. So no. <laughs> I can't even fathom that. But I think that underlying messaging is such a key piece because we don't always think about it. And I, I go back to, you know, you saying just those, the lack of information out there being that subtle message of maybe I shouldn't have kids. Maybe that mm -hmm. it's not for me. It does kind of come back to what I was thinking of all those other parenting books. It's the same thing. If you're not represented, what is that like underneath when you hear it and you, you grow up with that? It's not, I think that's a really key piece that is yeah. not always thought about in terms of. No, no. Of I would say that actually it's a huge issue, not just in terms of parenting, but in so many different ways that if you don't see yourself reflected in literature, whether it's nonfiction or fiction or in the medium more broadly, you might question your own place in society. And, you know, as you said, I'm also an academic in literature and I'm very interested in what literature shows, I especially, this is a side point, but I'm especially interested in you know children's literature and so you have words and images and how many of those books, for example, only show white people what message does that give to somebody who is not white? Is it, oh, well, my life is not worth being written about. My story is not worth being told. And I think it's the same, you know, for many LGBTQ people where we don't see ourselves represented in both fiction and nonfiction. And we think, well, maybe the options that are open to other people are not option to me, are not open to me. Or maybe, you know, people will judge me if I try to have those options. And so that's really disheartening. 
It really is. It, it's, you know, it, obviously that's a whole other topic in the literature. Like I said, I'm going to have to have you back on again because we're going to have to talk about all sorts of stuff in the literature because I think that's a fascinating conversation. Breastfeeding, LGBTQ, people of color, like there is so much to to unpack there. Um, but thinking, you know, you have this these struggles of like representation. I would also wonder, did you come across with families issues of, you know, legal or discrimination? Because, you know, I know you talk about fostering and adopting and everything. And I, I don't know what it's like in England, but I know in certain places in the U.S., it's still you can't adopt from every place. You can't foster. If, like, There's a lot of barriers in place that are not there for others, for heteronormative couples. And so how do people navigate those those types of discrimination um, or even, you know, legal barriers to starting a family? So um, to produce the book, I decided it was important that I include stories from LGBTQ people. You know, it was not going to be based on my own experience. It was going to try to be as inclusive as possible. So I interviewed people from around the world. Um, to be fair, most of them from the U.S., the UK, New Zealand, and then a few other places like France and Sweden also made into the book, Germany, but people don't always say in the book where they're from for various reasons. And what you're mentioning about uh, legal struggles absolutely came up quite a lot. You know, people would talk about, well, actually, we decided to move country so that we could foster or adopt or get married. You know, the number of times people said, well, I had to leave whichever country or even in the US, which state, so that I could live the life that I wanted to lead. And for some people, that was, you know, a liberating decision. They really enjoyed the new place, really happy with it. There's a couple in the book who, um, one of the women is from the UK, her wife is from Portugal, and they decided to move to New Zealand. And they're featured in the book, and they are thrilled with their decision. They love living in New Zealand, very happy. But there are other examples from the book where people moved and for them, it was a very difficult choice, but they didn't feel that they had any other options. So there's a couple in the book where both women are from France and they decided to move to England because um, they wanted to be sure that they were protected and that they could have equal rights to the children that they were going to eventually produce. And, you know, yes, they have a good life here in England, but maybe that isn't the life that they would have liked to lead all things being equal. And I think that it's incredibly difficult to think about having to make those kinds of um, choices just to be able to have children, which should be relatively straightforward, you'd think. That's it. It's, it's those huge choices, the huge upheavals in life that I think so many of us don't think about all the time, right? Like you even can think, oh, you could adopt, you can do this, you can do that. But no, it's not that simple. And you touched on one that maybe we'll get to in a bit, but that legal access, that's a, a question that, you know, we've, I, I think we'll come back to it as I want to get through the process here, but it's a fascinating one because it's one that I've read some research on that there's issues and that comes up, you know, with other families because of how we classify birth as, you know, a birth mother and a birth father and yeah. who has those access there. So, I mean, so if you get to the stage where suddenly you have options, if you choose to birth, right, as opposed to adopt, because that's a, a separate issue. There are so many different ways. And I love like you talked about, you know, there's the IVF, there's the co-parenting with someone else. You can, there's a lot of different options there. But there's also, you know, dealing with the people that are going to be there for birth. So you talked about the reaction your your GP had to this. I can only imagine that it's not that much better when you get into like actually giving birth, like are obstetricians better? Are, I guess, midwives, are they better? Like what are, how do the reactions, do they change over time? Do you get a more inclusive group? I wish I could say they were changing over time. I, from the interviews that I carried out with people and from the stories that people shared with me, it seems that it is so varied and it wasn't that there was one location that was better than another. For example, you know, 
the US versus other countries when there wasn't a place to give birth that was better, such as a home birth versus a hospital birth. It wasn't a midwife that was better than obstetrician. It's so, it was so dependent on the individual. So I had people who said, oh, it was great. You know, my identity was recognized. And then more often, unfortunately, I had people saying my identity was not recognized. You know, I went into the birth telling them I was non-binary and to say they about me. And they continued to say she and they called me lady and they said birth mother and those kinds of things. And that, you know, I always feel um, that you are so vulnerable when you are pregnant, when you're giving birth at the postpartum period, and then to have your identity denied in such a way, I mean, that must be incredibly painful. And so a lot of people were expressing um, kind of disappointment, but also you know, real anger, real sadness about it. For some people, I think it would affect their choice about whether to have another child, where to have another child. And you know, as a doula, I've also seen it with my own clients where somebody will come in and say, look, this is our family setup, or this is my name, this is my pronoun, and to have um, that completely ignored or forgotten um, throughout the course of what's happening. Um, so, you know, there are steps towards making it better. I mean, here in the UK, one of the NHS trusts, so one of our health service trusts in a region that's called Brighton and Sussex, um, they decided to institute sort of policy for more inclusive language. And as you probably can guess, there was quite a bit of um, pushback against that because some people felt that then that was erasing terms such as mother or breastfeeding, but that was not actually what the policy was saying. It was saying, let's open it up. Let's make it more um, inclusive for people. Um, but in general, the trusts are not kind of instituting those policies. It's very much a kind of, it depends who you get on the day and it depends what happens and what sort of mood they're in. I just feel like it's so unfair because we know like anytime you have this kind of negative experience in birth, you have a bit of birth trauma. That counts as birth trauma in my mind. It might not be related to the actual physical birth, but if you don't feel safe because people are not recognizing who you are and you're in a, such a vulnerable position, that's not, that that's trauma. That is something you have to go over. Totally. And, and I guess, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, but then I think about like, we know that has negative outcomes, it risks, you know, postpartum depression, all sorts of, you know, after effects from this. So just from a health perspective, it would seem like this is something to be getting in place quickly, and get everyone on board with. Totally. I mean, it to me, it actually doesn't feel that difficult to use the language that people want to be used. Um, but it was interesting, I was talking to a midwife, um, who said to me, you know, because I, I expressed that, well, can't you just use the pronoun somebody um, asks you to use or the language that, you know, if they want to say partner rather than husband or whatever it is, can't you just go with it? And the midwife said, yes, you know, in an ideal world, we, are, we would do those things, but we're so busy. You know, we're meeting so many people all the time and we forget who tells us what. And I understand that. But also I felt like, well, there should be an easy way to fix that. For example, on everybody's room or bed, if they're in the hospital, just put, you know, name, pronouns, and any other relevant information. I mean, personally, the number of times I had to say to GPs, midwives, consultants, whoever I saw, well, were two women, you know, because they would ask me about your husband. There's always this assumption, your husband. I know it's my wife. You know, even people I'd met before. And I thought, why don't you just write up my notes? Why are you asking me or saying the same things over and over again? It doesn't seem so hard. I know we're busy. I know we're stressed and we do get things wrong sometimes, but there are simple things we can put in place to make it a bit easier and to avoid some of that trauma that you're talking about, because that will have huge knock on effects. Somebody who's depressed maybe would be less likely to breastfeed or chest feed, might find it harder to bond with their child, might feel less likely to have another child in the future. You know, there are so many ways that it could go. And so just trying to make people feel safe and comfortable during birth um, seems really essential. I kind of feel like if we can put our pronouns at the bottom of our emails for everyone to see each time, mm -hmm. like you have a file. It's not like people go in to meet with a client without reviewing a file no. first. You usually have it right there. So there's so many spaces that this can be included. So, I mean, with this, though, it's very clear there's unfortunately a lot of variation and that probably skews 
towards the negative experiences with people in this. So how do you recommend someone goes about trying to determine if a healthcare provider, like if you get a chance to, to pick a healthcare provider, how do you determine if they're LGBTQ plus friendly? What are some of the things people can look out for? Because well, I think everyone would say we are, right? Like no one's yeah. going to walk in and be like, nope, I'm not friendly to you. You don't want to work with me. That's not going to, they're not going to advertise that. So I think. To, no, well, well, you say that, but there, there's a story that I think I, I use in the book where somebody um, went into the fertility clinic and the doctor said, oh, we only have to treat you because of the pink pound. You know, that was here in the UK. So the, I wouldn't work with you otherwise, unless you were you know, it's only because you're paying me. So so sometimes people are quite proud to be discriminatory, um, which of course is illegal, but that's a side matter. Um, yeah, but in general, you know, we don't always have a choice. You know, often in the UK, you have to go with your local GP surgery. In the US, everything is dependent on the health insurance that you have. Um, so we don't always have choices, but if you do have a choice, and even if you are stuck with that person, you can still kind of sound them out. You can ask them very politely, you know, can you tell me about your experience with the LGBTQ community? Um, can you tell me, you know, if you've worked with other poly families or have you ever worked with other trans men? Um, can you tell me what support you might provide for people in my situation? You know, there are ways to politely ask, um, but not everybody feels confident doing that. And I think that's part of the issue that the onus is always on us, the queer people, you know, the emotional labor, the actual labor, is always on us to have to ask people or to tell people what we need. And even then they're not always meeting those needs. So it's a really hard thing um, to find out if somebody is LGBTQ plus friendly. It makes me think about, um, and, and I'm drawing a blank on a name. I'm so bad with names. It's awful. Um, but I think it's the Earth app um, where it was... Kimberly Allers-Sears, Aller Kimberly Sears-Allers, yes, yes. Um, who's created that app to get the true experiences for people of color in yes, their birthing, yes. you know, so that you actually get the chance to review from the perspective of someone who is sharing, who's going to share your experience. Having a heteronormative white woman say, oh, this GP is fantastic, or oh, this OB, or oh, this midwife is great, is okay, <laughs> But that's not actually going to speak to the experience. It feels like there needs to be something like that as well for the LGBTQ plus community to kind idea. of, yeah. So there you go. That's your next, that's the next thing. To yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you, when you said that, I thought, yes, of course. I mean, because one thing I've noticed that in, for example, a lot of Facebook groups or other social media, people are always saying, oh, I live in the you know Seattle area. Does anyone know a good LGBTQ plus friendly blah, blah, blah. And people give recommendations, but nobody has really collated um, those recommendations. So I love that idea. We need somebody with tech skills out there to get in touch and to help us produce that. Exactly. And that's not me because technology hates me. So we don't even <laughs> yeah, want to me put too. me near it because it would just break by being in my vicinity. So we, it will not be me, yeah. but it really does need to happen. I think that's yeah. exactly it. Now, on that same note, though, like as you suggested in the UK and the US, a lot of times you don't get a choice as to who you work with. And so you could be stuck with someone who just is utterly disrespectful. So we know, again, as we've talked about the, the trauma from that, the issues, what can people do that might mitigate some of that? Like if you know you're going in and you're stuck with someone who is going to be disrespectful, um, mean i i don't like all these things are really there how do you navigate that in such a vulnerable situation and how do you try to to limit that yeah i mean i'm not sure that i have the solution but one thing that i found um and other people have mentioned is doing your research and going in in a very matter-of-fact way Yes, you know, somebody might say something really offensive or hurtful, but if you know in advance what you want, so you might go to the fertility clinic and say, okay, what we've decided to do is egg sharing. And here's how we're going to do it. We don't want high amounts of drugs. We're planning on three attempts, da, da, da. You know, so you state it and you're not asking them for advice. You're not asking for their opinion. You're saying, this is what I need. This is what we're paying for, or this is what you know our insurance is paying for. That's what we want to happen. 
I mean, but that also requires a certain level of privilege because you need to have done your own research. You need to have the confidence to go in there and say that and to not get too offended or too hurt by what people tell you. And that's really difficult. Um, and I spoke to a lot of people who had those kinds of challenging experiences and were very wounded by them. Um, so I don't have a great solution. I mean, what I'd love to see happen is for fertility clinics, doctors, offices, and so on to have training, sensitivity training for their staff. And here's how you work with LGBTQ families or, you know, here are some here's some information, even if it's just a pamphlet or a brief online training, here are the options for infant feeding for LGBTQ plus people, you know, something that so they need more training so that it's more on them to figure out how to meet us. But in the absence of that, if you go in in quite a, a straightforward, so to speak, way, and, um, you know, you're really firm about what you want and try not to take too much um, personally, but that is a hard thing to say. It really is because it's putting the onus on the person who's being discriminated against to try and avoid their discrimination or just be able to suck it up, which isn't fair. No. One of the things I was wondering, um, you're a doula, and I guess I always kind of perhaps glorify, but I feel like the most, just because of all the doulas I've met, and same with lactation consultants, actually, too, they tend to be on average skew more towards the positive, supportive group, but maybe I'm wrong on that. And I'm wondering if in if you can more readily bring someone like that into your experience to help, would that help mitigate some of the others to know that at least one person is being respectful and you, you get a choice over those people, right? Like those are people you choose to bring in. So in terms of going through that mm -hmm. process of determining if someone is LGBTQ plus friendly, when you have someone on your side, does that help mitigate some of the but crap that you get from from others? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, there have been many, many horrible things about the pandemic, but one of them has been that people aren't allowed to bring friends, doulas, partners, other relatives to their ultrasounds, to their midwife appointments, to the doctor's appointments. They've had to go in alone and it's only just started changing. I mean, our local hospital, only I think it was only one week ago said that people could now have you know a doula with them where they taken that away during the pandemic and it was you know one birth partner only and only when you're in active labor which you know it's not always easy to um to say when somebody has then transitioned to active labor and then to get that birth partner in there so now they're saying yes you can have two people with you all the time but they only just changed that you know which is a long time um, coming and but generally yes if you have handpicked somebody who you know is going to be supportive and who can help you speak up I think that would really help um, so you know in terms of things that I can do for my clients I can certainly say to a midwife oh you know you keep talking about pregnant ladies actually could you say pregnant people or you know my client's preference is the pronoun they. Could you please remember to use that? You know, I have no problem saying those things as long as my client wants me to say those things. I don't just speak up randomly. Um, but of course, not everybody can afford it. You know, we've already talked about privilege and it is an extra cost and it's not something that everybody can afford. Um, and so that's a worry as well. You know, again, it's another little pet peeve of mine because we had we something we do have data on is how having a doula helps birth outcomes and mental like postnatal outcomes and so why it's not covered especially in places where we have socialized health is a little beyond me i will admit it is something that we know improves outcomes so it is evidence-based and should be part of the equation for anyone who wants it as Definitely. an option there so Going on here, I know I'm sorry, I could talk about the issues here for probably <laughs> hours, but I know there's so much more to this book because you cover everything. It's not just starting a family. It's not the birth. You go into everything. So I want to kind of be able to hit on some of this. But one of the things that I, I really loved was in the feeding section because there's so many options that, you know, and many that don't exist for heterosexual families that it doesn't, you know, it just can't happen, such as like co-feeding and everything. So yes. What do you see, like how, 
I, I know, again, data is scarce on anything, but from your experience talking to families, how frequently are people engaging in all these kind of alternatives um, that are, are not more commonly presented as, okay, you're either um, breast or chest feeding or bottle feeding? Like those are kind of the two go-tos, but there's a lot more to it that you you can kind of present there. But do you see people really engaging in that? And are they even aware of of that as an option? I think a lot of people aren't aware. Sometimes people sort of fall into it. For example, um, I talked to families where there were two moms or a mom and a trans dad, um, and they both had given birth, but quite close together. And so it just became a kind of natural thing. Oh, well, let's, you know, share the feeding. Um, and it wasn't something they'd necessarily thought about in advance, but there are other people such as trans bums who, um, if for them, it's really affirmative and really important to chest feed their child. And so they very consciously, you know, when their partner got pregnant, decided, right, I'm going to take domperidone, I am going to start pumping, and I'm going to share in the feeding of this baby to whatever extent is possible. So I think it depends a little bit on the situation. Um, and again, there's not a lot of um, research into it. And there's also um, not a lot of information. So, you know, when you go to the doctor or the midwife and they say tentatively, you know, are you thinking about feeding the baby yourself? You know, this is often the way they phrase it. And if you say yes, they say, OK, here's a pamphlet on breastfeeding. Um, and if you say no, they say, OK, here's a pamphlet on um, how you make up a bottle. And that's the end of the conversation. Nobody says to you, oh, you know, they're two women in this family, have you thought about that you could both breastfeed and ch or chest feed? Or have you considered that combination feeding is actually really common or, you know, whatever it is, they don't seem to have the time or the energy for those kinds of conversations. I'm not trying to criticize doctors or midwives at all, because I realize that they are under a huge amount of time pressure. But I do sometimes feel and the people I interviewed also um, sort of gave me that impression that they treat patients almost like it's a box ticking exercise. So you've got somebody in, in your office, you have 10 questions you need to ask, and you're going to ask those same questions of everybody, give the same information, that's it, rather than really taking the time to treat people as individuals and to give them that information. One positive thing I can say is that even though there's very little research, um, I'm actually currently on the advisory board for a new research project into the experiences of trans and non-binary chest feeding. And so it's just a, a new research project just going on. They've just um, been interviewing the first few um, subjects for um, the research study. And hopefully there will be some findings from that later this year that will be of practical benefit as well as, you know, just a general um, theoretical interest too. But there's that that is kind of few and far between in terms of those kinds of projects. How do you find the knowledge of lactation consultants on this? Like if you're coming in and you're talking about sharing chest feeding, breastfeeding, co-feeding, is there enough knowledge around that to support families if they were to, to approach someone for help there? Um, again, I don't want to sort of denigrate people, but I think in general, people don't necessarily have that kind of knowledge. So, you know, when I took the IBCLC exam, um, there was almost nothing on LGBTQ plus feeding. Uh, you know, there's a set of topics that you have questions about. Some of it is about sort of, you know, cultural competence and so on, but there was very, very little on what it would mean to breastfeed, chest feed, and I'm hoping they will improve that in the next few years. But when I've spoken to other lactation consultants, some have said, oh, yes, you know, I've dealt with a lot of, you know, queer families or I've, you know, but many people said, oh, I've never met anybody like that. I didn't know. I didn't even know that there was a, a protocol that you could use to induce lactation. Um, and, you know, if lactation consultants who have the highest level of knowledge about breastfeeding and chest feeding aren't necessarily aware of these things, then you can understand why doctors don't necessarily have the knowledge or midwives don't have the knowledge. But I think, you know, many people are very willing to learn. It's just they need those opportunities. And IBCLCs have to get a certain number of continuing education credits every five years. And so I'm hoping that maybe they will develop more courses on kind of queer feeding. It's such a, you know, circular struggle, because I know having developed courses, 
resources for IBCLC's accreditation on sleep related, but it is, you need to have the evidence for it. So they yes. need to be evidence-based, but if we don't have the research going on to give us the evidence base, how do you, like, it's just this awful cycle where I think it all comes down to the bias in funding for research that is really limiting how we can move things forward. It's very frustrating. Um, but yes, I, I do hope that they come up with more. So if you are thinking of creating, if you're listening out there and doing, you know, any any courses, whatnot, you've got some knowledge, please do one because we do need this out there for everyone to take. So we definitely do. Yes. And I mean, I think also, you know, because as lactation consultants, you need to kind of balance out different needs. So, you know, you're faced with, let, let's say you've got a client, infant, and then new parents, and you're thinking, well, how can I get the infant the most milk? Um, and, you know, you know that it's supply, demand, so you want the infant to mostly feed off the parent who's going to be the primary feeder. So it's kind of an ethical issue there. But at the same time, you're aware that both parents want to feed and want to have that bond. Um, and that's also kind of a slightly different ethical issue. And I know that it can sometimes be difficult to know what the right thing to do is in any given situation. So we really do need more knowledge and more kind of case studies around it to help us all. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to go back to something you you talked about at the beginning, because you mentioned earlier that not all LGBTQ parents or soon to be parents have had the most supportive upbringing. They may have had struggles with their own family, their, their families of origin, as you put it. They may have been rejected. They may have been mistreated. How do you think, I mean, I'm sure that affects the desire to form a family for many, but I also feel like it would affect individual struggles to parent. Like, what is your role model? We always say, you know, you see so frequently people go back to what they lived, right? Like, that's one of the big struggles we have to kind of take is changing how people um, approach getting over their own past, whether it's whatever, whoever you are, that's kind of our big struggle. So in this case, though, these struggles can be so huge that it's really difficult to to navigate. So what how do these things play out for these families and what are the supports that they might be able to seek to help with these areas? Yeah, I mean this is a really tricky one that came up a lot in um in the research and I think so for some people it was a concern am I going to repeat the same things that my parents did to me? So my parents were abusive or they rejected me or, you know, they put me down or they wouldn't let me be myself, you know, whatever it is. If I were a parent, would I reproduce those behaviors in my relationship with my children? And so I talked to people who were afraid to have children because they thought, well, those are my models. You know, am I going to imitate them? And then I met people who had that thought and then thought, no, I'm going to do a lot of work on myself so that I can challenge those models and do something differently. So, you know, I say a few places in the book, therapy, you know, that can be, you know, again, it's a thing that costs money in many locations. So it is another um, area of privilege, but it can be hugely beneficial to people in trying to work through those issues. Um, for many people I spoke to, there was a real sense of sadness in that they, they had had children, but they did not have the relationships with their parents so their children were not engaged with grandparents and you know if you are somebody who maybe had grandparents in your own life and you thought i'd love to give that to my children but i'm simply not able to because my parents mm. are prejudiced or they've cut me off or you know whatever it might be that's sad and that's a burden that you will always carry with you there were a few cases where people found that actually having children turned their lives around and that their parents sort of said, oh, we don't want to miss out on having grandchildren. We've realized we were wrong. We're going to try to get over it. Um, we're going to, you know, make amends as best we can. Um, but some people simply aren't able to do that. They're not simply able to put aside their prejudices. So there are quite a few people I spoke to who said, you know, they just didn't have their parents or other relatives, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whatever in their lives. And that's hard. I mean, uh, you know, one of the great things about being adults is that we can make our own families, choose our own paths. Um, but some people are a little bit envious when they see, oh, but my, you know, heterosexual friend 
is you know like best friends with her with her mother and you know her mother's so involved and babysits and I don't have that and um, so I think it can go lots of different ways but really I think you know working on yourself whether that means therapy or mindfulness or journaling or whatever to try to think through those issues and think about how you'd like to go um, forward I think that can be um, the best thing to do really. It reminds me I know so many families where even heterosexual families where there's a toxic relationship with parents that they have to kind of navigate that. But it seems to me qualitatively different when that toxic relationship is based on who you are as a person that comes out that it it's it's difficult to to navigate that one and move away from it as opposed to just being like, nope, this person is just toxic and I don't want to be near them and it has nothing to do with me. And even though it doesn't have anything to do with anyone who is LGBTQ plus, it still can feel that way because that's how it's been framed from the time, you know, you're young and, and going on. Now, do you ever see families where they haven't been able to cut people out, but then they're seeing their children exposed to some of this negativity about who their parent is? Yes, I, absolutely. That comes up a lot. I see that especially in social media groups where somebody will say, you know, we go visit my parents, but they're always saying horrible things about LGBTQ people. And so my child is very confused because obviously we're a queer family. Um, and, you know, that's tricky and everybody has to find their own way. But, you know, I sometimes wonder why are you allowing those messages to get through to your child? You know, yes, you can counteract them at home, but you're still allowing those messages in and saying that they're acceptable to a certain extent. And, at some point, you, I'm not saying people should cut off the relatives. I, I don't want, I'm not giving that advice, but you know, you do have to think about how confusing it can be for children to hear one thing, one place and something else somewhere else. I suppose the way it might be, you know, if they have divorced parents and those parents give very different messages about anything, um, you know, politics, for example, or whether you're allowed to have sweets, you know, I mean, it could, it could be so many different things. Um, but yeah, you know, what, what do you want your children to think about um, the equal value of all human beings? And do you really want them to be exposed to those negative ideas about you, yourself and your family? Um, you know, it's a big question. It, it really is. And it's a, it's such a hard one because I think like, as you said, you talk about this balance of, I want my kids to have grandparents. Like you're really navigating these, these pulling these two separate things that pull at each other of, you know, something more traditional in terms of having your grandparents and this family structure of all this versus the reality of, you know, no, I don't want my kid to hear negative things that's going to make them feel it's hard. Now, I'm curious, you said, um, yes, you can counter the narrative at home. But that's probably not, not ideal in terms of being exposed. Can you elaborate on that? What is, you know, because I do think a lot of people do feel that way about a lot of things that as long as I can counter the narrative at home, it's okay. Why is it not okay? Or not oh, well, ideal? Yeah. Not ideal. Is not ideal. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. I think Yes, I mean, obviously every situation is different, but, you know, children are constantly underestimated, I would say. People think that children don't notice things, don't hear things, don't pick things up. They do. They are so smart. They're sponges. They're amazing creatures. And, you know, if you're saying to them, oh, you know, look at our lovely queer family. This is great. You know, this is how we live our life. And then you're taking them into a situation where somebody's saying the opposite. They notice that. And if you don't talk them through that, that's going to be very confusing to them. And that might bring about feelings of shame or worry. Um, you know, they might not really understand what's going on here. Why do you say one thing at home and we hear something else from grandma and, you know, I hear something else at school. And we also know that children are very impacted by other messages that they hear. So, you know, as parents, we like to think we're so influential and we are in some ways. But also, you know, there's peer pressure and there are the messages that get from the media. And so if you're exposing them to things that are very much against what you're trying to, um, the values you're trying to give them at home, they will pick that up. And so, you know, for me personally, I feel it's better to kind of show them our values in as many ways as possible and not take them into situations that are against those values. And if we do, to then really talk that through with them to help them understand you know, here's why we went to see those people, even if they think very differently than us. 
but here's what we're going to do about that going forward. And I would imagine the child's age has a big influence in this too, because you can't really talk a two-year-old through that. They are going to pick up those messages, but they really don't always get the nuance. Whereas an eight-year-old, you might be able to say, okay, this is what's going on. This is why we go. This is what's wrong. But I also think there's kind of the difficulty when our kids don't see us stand up in those Mm. situations. If we're accepting of someone saying something without standing up and saying, actually, that's not great. It does send the message, I think, to them that somehow we're internalizing that as well. Yes. I mean, just as a personal example, um, there is a relative of mine, <laughs> I won't be more specific than that, but who, although is very polite to my wife, doesn't quite acknowledge my wife's role in our relationship. And so we'll often say, you know, this is BJ. And these are her children, and we'll kind of ignore my wife, and which is, of course, very offensive and very upsetting. And now my wife is an amazing, calm-tempered person and always says, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's all right. We know what we are, but I don't find that that's right. And exactly as you said, the children notice and they wonder, are you going to say something about that? So I always make it a point to say, and this is my wife, the children's other mother, um, you know, and even if my wife doesn't necessarily care if I do that or not, I feel that it's really essential to do so for the children's sake. And also because it makes me feel better. You know, I don't want to just accept that, this, that kind of erasure of our family setup. And I think that's such a crucial piece that you just brought up there is that it's, I think there are people who truly, I'm not bothered by this, that, or the other. It's not a bad thing to not be bothered by others, to be like, yeah, mm-hmm. let them do what they do. But I think we do have to get beyond that to say, okay, I'm not bothered by it, but what message is this sending to our kids if we don't say yes. something or do something about it? Because that's kind of that that added piece that goes into being a parent. Like I can roll my eyes at, you know, the some people's thoughts on on various things, but if my kids are hearing it me rolling my eyes doesn't tell them that it's wrong to say those things, right? It's still, they need to have it explicitly pointed out to them each time. No, this is, and I love the way you do it. Just no, if you're not going to do it, I'm not going to say, excuse me, please mention my wife. I'm just going to do it and make it clear that this is what it is. So this kind of leads into a bigger topic though. And in kind of the nearing the, the end here of all the stuff you talk about, but talking to kids and talking to other people, because it's a fascinating area here as to having to like we just take for granted that in our society I don't have to talk to my kids about our family structure I don't have people asking me about how you know me and my husband navigate parenting that's not you know no one comes up and says how do you do this like that is not something that we face and yet it is something that comes up for a lot of queer families so yes and those are massive complexities and you know these are conversations that are awkward at the best of times in some cases like talking about sex and making babies and everything so what i mean first what kinds of questions would kids might have that parents need to be aware of and we're talking about their own kids here we're not we're going to leave other people for after but what are the kinds of things that kids may come up and ask that you know if you don't want to be caught off guard because none of us do we all you know we accept certain conversations are coming like sex and puberty and this and that and we all have to prep ourselves for them but (laughs) what are other ones that may need to be prepped in these families So my personal perspective is that I answer everything my children ask whenever they ask it in an age appropriate way. So that means that I try to be as prepared as possible for as early as possible, because you never know when something is going to come up. And I also feel that it's better to give them the information earlier rather than to wait for them to suddenly ask, because you don't know if somebody I mean, I hope my children feel comfortable asking us questions, but you don't know if sometimes they're puzzling something over in their heads and they don't know how to phrase it as a question. So I tried to give them that information earlier. Um, So the kinds of things that children notice is, you know, oh, well, I've got two dads, but other people have a dad and a mom. Why is my family set up like that? You know, and that's something that they start to notice as they get a little bit older, three, four oh, families look different because you don't really notice those kinds of things when you're really small. So they might ask, um, 
And then once they've gotten there, it's, well, I understand that when there's a mom and a dad, the baby usually grows in the mother's tummy, but where did I grow? How did that come about? Do you need a mom and dad? And so, yeah, it sometimes gets into those little questions of, you know, where do babies come from and sex and how are babies made? And so, you know, I think that there, I don't want to say it's an easy conversation, but if you just kind of stay really factual and give them what they need to know, and then you add to it each time you have the conversation. So, you know, in my case, I felt like it was never a big issue because we always just said from the beginning and we read lots of books, you know, I love children's literature. So we were reading books that featured different kinds of families and we could say, oh, look, you know, here's a family like ours or here's a different family. Here's how they might have made their babies. You know, so we were trying to have those conversations. So it was very normalized. Um, and I think that some children might also feel jealous about other family setups and they might say, well, could I have a dad or, you know, why don't I have this and could I have it or are we normal? You know, that's a big thing because children do want to fit in. Are we normal? Are we as good as other people? Are we like other people? And kind of wanting to know where their family sits in terms of the norms of their given society. I also wonder, I don't know if you've encountered this or if people talked about it, but the comments from other kids that they might yes. get, like, and I know this is, I, I think of it more in terms of, um, well, not more, but it first triggered for me talking to, you know, families that have immigrated and what kids face in terms of comments about skin color or food preferences or all this stuff that gets picked up on very early. And kids are not always kind in their questioning mm -hmm. or when things deviate. So do you find that people have to often navigate these comments and stuff from other children in social settings? Oh, yes. I mean, one of the things that's great about kids is that they do say what they're thinking and they don't necessarily think about whether that might hurt your feelings or if it sounds offensive. But I think generally they don't mean it in that way. You know, it's it comes from a place of real curiosity, um, which is not the case with adults who do know better and do know how to ask questions politely. So when my, when I and also people that I spoke to, you know, get these kinds of questions from other people's children, you know, I think the response is always, oh, so you're curious. Okay, well, I will give you some information. And I don't mean you should, you know, suddenly start talking to somebody else's child about where babies come from. But you can definitely say, I mean, one of the things that um, happened a lot with, um, especially with our older child when she was at nursery is, you know, I'd go pick her up and they noticed that it was always two women picking, <laughs> picking her up at school, at nursery. And so gradually children start going, well, okay, she's got a mummy and a mama. Where is her daddy? You know, they were, where's her daddy? Why isn't her daddy coming to pick her up? And so you just, oh, okay, well, let me tell you a little bit about that. She doesn't have a daddy. And it was interesting to me because um, staff at the nursery always looked really shocked and really uncomfortable, but I wasn't shocked or uncomfortable because it's, it's a, you know, I understand where that question came from. So, oh, well, actually, you know, she doesn't have a daddy. She's got a mummy and a mama and, you know, some families are like that. Some people just have a mummy or, you know, so I always just kind of said it as a very, you know, that's just a fact about our family. And then I would usually say to the child's parents, oh, just so you know, so-and-so asked me and I just told them that, you know, she's got a mummy and a mama in case you want to continue that conversation. But I didn't want other parents to sort of get worried about what I was telling their children. So I tried to keep it very factual, very simple. Um, some parents would get angry about it. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, I mean, I definitely had a situation. This was actually when my child was older. The older child was um, was older and uh, the child, her friend had, you know, said the same kind of question to me. And I'd given the same sort of answer, but slightly more detailed because they were older by that stage. And the mother kind of came up to me later and she said, you know, my daughter doesn't even know they're single parents. I certainly didn't want her to know about, you know, that people could have two mothers or two fathers. It's too complicated for her mind. And I was like, well, it's not too complicated. It's, re it's really quite simple. And she can see we're living that. So she sees the fact of it. She, you know, it's, it's not a difficult concept. My child doesn't find it a difficult concept. It's so normalized. Um, but in general, I feel like just give them the facts. That's all you but need to do. How do you even justify saying they don't even know? She's coming and seeing it in front of her. I mean, it's almost like gaslighting. It doesn't exist. <laughs> Whatever you're seeing is not there. We're doing voodoo <laughs> magic here. It's That's insane to me that people could even get upset about that. Um, now, 
I do love that. And it's so true. Kids have, they are so curious. They are so blunt and they are so, they don't mean to be mean. It's just, that is, that's how their curiosity comes out is there's no filter between up here and that mouth. So it comes out, but (laughs) I, and I love that you offer those answers, but one of the things that you talked about in the book that I really, really loved was this idea that you do not have to be a spokesperson and answer everyone's questions. Um, and I, I mean, that even includes kids, although I do feel like, as you said, a very simple factual answer for kids is really like any adult, we want to work towards opening up any questions about anything for our kids um, and other kids when it's appropriate. Um, and as you do it, it's totally appropriate. It's just factual. But I'm sure people get questions from adults that some may be polite, some may not be polite. But can you talk a bit about this idea that I think, you know, you don't have to be a spokesperson. You don't have to, because I think it feels like maybe you have to be if you are trying to represent everyone in to these individuals. And I see that as a big struggle that people could face if they really don't want to get into everything. Yes. I think, you know, when you're different from the norm in whatever way that might be, whether it's you know, by your ethnicity or your religion or being queer or, you know, extended breastfeeding or anything that in some way is slightly different from what people view as the norm, you get a lot of questions. And okay, you know, I'm a teacher, so it's kind of my natural inclination to want to answer questions. But you know what, I also want to just live my life. And there are a lot of people who just want to live their lives, you know, with dignity and privacy, and they don't want to have to tell everything to everyone. So I think, you know, depending on how somebody asks you, you might say, actually, that's not the most appropriate conversation for right now. Or um, I'll thank you for your question, but could I recommend some books that might answer that for you or a website or, um, or you know, there's some information about that on the Internet. Or you could say, you know, I don't really feel like talking about that right now. Or, you know, sometimes I kind of give somebody a surprised look and say, oh, that's a really personal question, um, you know, just to make them think that maybe that wasn't so appropriate. But sometimes people are very intrusive very nosy, you know, these, where did your babies come from? Who carried the babies? Um, you know, where, what's the sperm donor? You know, people can ask so much in situations, you know, like a children's birthday party. And you're thinking, would you ask that of a heterosexual or cisgender couple? Would you ask them what position they were in when they made their baby? So occasionally, you know, if I'm feeling particularly confident and snarky, I might turn it around and say to them, oh, why don't you tell me about how you made your babies? Um, you know, and there are times when that is an appropriate way because it does make people think that they don't have the right to get all the information about me that they want. Um, in general, I'm, I answer when I feel able. And if I don't feel able or I'm not in the mood, not interested, I give them a polite response of that's not the conversation we need to have right now, but I can recommend a book to you. And I, so. and, and I think that's so crucial of like, you know, you're a teacher, you're comfortable with that, comfortable being snarky, which I love. But I just think about people that I know that are just their temperament. They're both more private, more shy, perhaps less social, but also might feel the pressure to constantly have to justify everything. Because I I think back of all the experiences we've talked about up to this stage, where it's all the struggles you face. And to feel like you have to justify yourself as being a parent, that you have to, that you could feel that pressure to come out and answer these to still kind of say, no, I'm legitimately allowed to be a parent. So therefore I have to answer everything. And I don't think that's fair. Like, I hope there's a, an understanding that that isn't what has to happen. Right. Mm. I think I, um, people see something different and they feel they need to know about it, want to know about it, and they don't always think about how that might affect the person that they're asking those questions of. I think we could all do better to be a bit more polite, a bit kinder to one another. Um, you know, it's I, I love when people are curious and they want to learn, but there are various ways of learning, and it doesn't always mean, you know, impinging on somebody's lived experience. You know, some people feel like, thank goodness we have our children now. Let's just get on with the business of parenting. We don't need to tell everybody about our, you know, our journey through adoption or whatever it is. And that's totally valid. And we all need to respect each other's journeys, whether it's about being queer or anything else. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think that's also, I mean, one of the things I loved about the book was how much of it spoke to other people talking to families. Like it opens up the mindset of, no, what is appropriate to ask? What isn't appropriate ask? When when is it appropriate to talk about something? And, and how do you go about doing that? Because I think it is so crucially important. And that's why I said I do feel like this book is more inclusive than all of the other books, because it really benefits everyone who reads it, because it's the healthcare providers, it's the families it supports. And it's those of us who want to support those families by, you know, promoting more research, talking about, you know, development of, of programs to synthesize, you know, healthcare providers that are LGBTQ plus friendly, kind of stuff like that. It's such a such a great thing for it. So I am, I'm so thankful you wrote this and I'm so thankful it's out there for families and I'm going to, and I know we're at time and I hope you have a couple more minutes here just for me to ask the one piece of advice that you would give to current LG or soon to be soon to be your current LGBTQ plus families that would help them in their journey going forward. What is the one thing that they really need to keep in mind? If you can narrow it down to one, knowing that there's a whole lot more in the book that they can get, it's still all available. But that one piece that's so kind of probably transcended everyone's experience. I mean, I think one of the key things really is to think about your own kind of values, because that colors your entire journey. So what is important to you about how you'd like to produce children? Um, so, you know, there's somebody in the book who talks about how for them, reproducing is not the right way forward. Adoption or fostering would be the right way forward. So you're thinking about your values in terms of that, thinking about your values in terms of how you would like to be a parent, who you would like to be involved in your children's lives. You know, so much of what we do, sometimes it seems like we're kind of on automatic and we just do the things that society tells us to do, but actually reflecting on who you are what your life situation is and what you want to get out of it. I think that will help you in your journey forward. And I think that's probably excellent advice for everyone going, <laughs> especially with parenting. So, well, thank you so much, BJ. This has been such a joy. I am so thankful. And I'm not joking when I say I need you now on to talk about literature and representation be because it is <laughs> such a another fascinating topic but i thank you for writing this i thank you for all of it um in the show if you look at the show notes we'll have links to the book to some sites maybe that might be helpful for people if they are looking at sharing with others um and again if you're running research here is a wide open topic that needs more <laughs> done so please jump into it so once again thank you so much for being here thank you tracy that's it for this week Thank you so much for listening. I hope you can take home some advice, whether it's for you as an LGBTQ parent, or for those of us who can do better in supporting all families. If anyone wants to jump on the app or website idea, please do. We all know it's much needed. Next week, I welcome back Dr. Levita D'Souza as we dive into a discussion of how valid sleep training studies are from a population perspective. What do I mean by this? Well, we all know that sleep training is considered quote-unquote evidence-based and is recommended to, well, frankly, everyone. But for that, you need to ensure that studies have included all types of people. It's called external validity. We decided that we should break this down just to see how good these studies are from an external validity perspective, and then we can better understand how valid the advice is. A little bit of a spoiler alert, it might not be as good as they think. In the meantime, please stay safe and happy parenting.